Hello and welcome to the SAIT podcast. You are listening to a discussion on the 2020 exams in Scotland. This was recorded on the 6th of August 2020. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest SAIT webinar on the exams 2020. Um, Today we are going to be talking about the biggest story in the news across Scotland, especially for teachers and for pupils this week, um, which is the release of the SQA's uh, results uh, for 2020. Um, We're going to be talking with an expert panel um, and some uh, favourite guests of ours who are going to talk about the issues that have um, arisen from this season's exam results and maybe think a little bit about what we think about them and what maybe we'd like to suggest could be changed about the way that we do exams in this country and maybe around the world. Um, very quickly, we're just I'm just going to introduce uh, our speakers and a little bit of the details of what we're talking about today. So it's an open panel discussion. We've put this together at the, the, the last minute. It's only been 48 hours since the exams came through people's front doors. Um, we're going to talk about what's gone right, what's gone wrong, uh, and what could the future look like. Um, this is going to be a positive discussion. We're not here to say that everything that um, the exam system tries to do is completely wrong, but we maybe do have some suggestions on what could be done better. Um, just to remind people of where we, how we got here. So uh, in 2020, a lot of things have happened. Um, I haven't even mentioned coronavirus in this slide because it seems to permeate everything about our lives at the moment. But way back when, in the eight, on the 18th of March, um, the Scottish government announced that schools would close at the end of the week. I think it was a shock for a lot of people, but we'd seen education systems closing around the world. Um, so the Scottish government ended up making that decision. Um, It seemed quick to me, but the day after that, the SQA exams were cancelled. Actually, thinking back to it, it seemed like a long time between those two, but it was just the day after. And the day after that, which is a Friday, the schools closed on the 20th of March. Um, If you're a teacher, you'd be very aware of this, but the deadline for submitting your grades, the band of students and the rank order for each of your learners to the SQA was the 29th of May. So we had all that time to decide exactly what our estimates were going to be for the SQA. In between that time and the 4th of August, the SQA completed its moderation process and produced final grades, final exam results, which were released to candidates on Tuesday. Today is Thursday. Uh, On the 11th of August, we are all going back to school. The schools are reopening. So really quickly, um, a few questions that are going to sort of structure our discussion today. First of all, we're going to talk about why are we talking about exams right now? That might seem obvious, but we just want to talk about what we're going to talk about and what we're not going to talk about. We're not just talking about 2020. We might actually be thinking all the way back to 1888 when in Scotland hires were first sat. And we're going to talk about these questions of who the exam systems benefit, um, who's excluded by exam systems, and what exactly is an exam system designed to do, and then maybe a little bit more provocatively, what should an exam system do? Okay, Um, We'll talk about that in a second. But SAIT and Nate. Well, what is SAIT? Um, Hopefully lots of you are tuning in because you've uh, seen some of our other excellent webinars, which you can go on our YouTube channel and uh, watch after this. Please stay here for the moment. Um, But SAIT is the Scottish Association for the Teaching of English. We're part of NATE, the National Association for the Teaching of English, which has been around since just after the war. Um, It grew out of the London-based late the London Association, uh, which was formed in 1947. Um, We are committed to an inclusive approach in teaching, which focuses on the child. Um, And we recognise the need to devise a model of the subject that is at its core responsive to the experiences, interests and language of students. We're very much a pupil focused organisation in our English teaching. And while we're focused on English teachers, um, today really we're talking about the exam system in general, but maybe bringing in examples from the English system. 
Straight on to our speakers. First of all, we have Raymond. Raymond is an educator and has been for four decades. Um, he's been a music instructor, instructor, an English teacher, a principal teacher, an assistant head, and also a lecturer in initial teacher education. He currently works as a teacher and an education consultant working with English and behaviour management. Uh, Melina is a Franco-Indian teacher of English and a committed anti-racist activist. She's part of the Anti-Racist Educator Collective and is on the board of SAMI, the Scottish Association for Minority Ethnic Educators. Um, she's well involved in research and has recently been spending time in the US talking about race and is currently researching racial trauma and its implications for Scottish education. Uh, next up, we have Kenny Piper. Um, Kenny has been an English teacher in East Kilbride for over 20 years and currently lives in Glasgow. Um, he's written widely and been published on the benefits of reading, especially for young people, including his book, Reading for Pleasure, A Passport to Everywhere, which was published in 2016. He also writes about football, occasionally for Nutmeg magazine. I believe, to his benefit, he's a Partick Thistle fan. Um, and last of all, we have Lindsay Duncan. Um, she has recently completed contract as the literacy lead for a regional improvement collaborative, lots of acronyms here, a RIC, um, and had responsibility for closing the attainment gap across four local authorities. Um, in a very storied career, she was also previously acting education officer for literacy and English at Education Scotland. She was the team leader at the SQA for higher English, and she has also worked as literacy lead for pupil equity funding in a local authority supporting staff development. She worked in many teaching positions as an English teacher, from classroom teacher to principal teacher. However, enough of that. Let's bring our speakers in today. So they're going to appear on your screen now. Hello, Raymond. Hello, Melina. Hi there. Lindsay. Hi. Hello, Kenny. Hi. How are you all today? Starting with Raymond, how, have you had a nice day? Have you had a nice week? I'm absolutely, uh, yeah, it's a great week. Just come uh, back from a holiday mm. in South Uist, which was lovely. We took the puppy for a walk. Um, around the RSPB sanctuary in Loch Winnock today. So I'm chilled. I've had lots of fresh air. Even in exam results week, anyway. Even in exam results week. <laughs> how are you today, Melina? How have you been? I'm very well, thanks. Enjoying the warm weather in Glasgow. I went on holiday last week to Galway Forest, so that was really nice out in the countryside. Excellent. You might see a little bit of red around my, my, my forehead here from walking around on Sky today where it has been sunny. Kenny, how are you today? Very well. Also enjoying the sunshine in the garden. I was out planting fruit trees in the back garden today. So next year we'll have some plums and pears with a bit of luck if it works out well. So it's been good. These idyllic lives that we have. We have. <laughs> Lindsay, um, how about you? How was your day? Uh, not bad at all, yes. A bit of writing for our local newspaper, a bit of wandering about looking at the, the flooding that we had. But yes, it's it's been a good day. I'm having real trouble uh, connecting with everyone else. I can't see anybody else or hear them well we can see you Lindsay, and we can hear you so hopefully you're coming through loud and clear we'll, we'll hope those gremlins disappear in a wee bit okay um we're going to try and structure this discussion roughly around those questions that we had but to be honest i think we've all got plenty to say so the problem's going to be um reining people in a little bit and trying not to run over our finish time of eight o'clock tonight um hopefully you're sitting down to your tea watching this and um, we will try and take questions as we go through um, there are plenty of people watching, so please ask questions and give your opinions and we will include those in the discussion and try to answer any questions, but also generally respond to your ideas as well. Um, there are lots of experts in the audience. I'm sure every teacher is now an expert on the exam system. Um, so really quickly, I'm actually going to direct a few of these questions for people to start off with. Um, Kenny, I guess some people might be saying it's, it's 48 hours since the kids got their results. The SQA have had a hammering in the press. They've had a hammering from teachers. And here's Sate and a bunch of English teachers piling on the pressure a bit more. Um, 
Would you agree with that? Why are we talking about exams right now? Um, partly that, I think. You know, I think it's, it's, it's going to be difficult to avoid talking about this year's um, diet. But uh, I think many of us, and, and certainly myself, have, have had thoughts about uh, how we assess learning of our young people in schools for a long time. And um, I have had issues with the exam system for, for a long time. And if we start with it with a premise that um, our education system should be about equity and about, you know, we've talked about narrowing gaps uh, for a long time, then this year especially has highlighted the problems. As I tweeted last night, we're finally seeing how the sausages are made and, and it's maybe not looking that nice. So um, I hope we have a discussion tonight where we talk about, you know, better models of assessment rather than exams, because I have issues of getting away from exams in general, but um, but certainly we're, we're here to hopefully be, be positive about changes that we can all support, if that, you know, sounds okay. So, so people agree with that? I mean, I guess anyone can jump in here. Are we just seeing um, how the sausage is made? Are we? Is this just something that happens every single year and just this year there's a real focus on the process? Um, or is this a one-off? You know, 2021, the exams will be fine as long as coronavirus lets us send the kids into a hall and in that, however long it is, one hour, two hour, show what they've got. I think if, the model, sorry, if the model remains the same, we're going to get, if you keep doing the same things and expect a different result, that's the definition of madness. So I think if we do the same thing all the time, we're going to get to the same thing and it might not reflect the reality of, of the learners that, that we see, I mean, that you were twice as likely to be disadvantaged. Um, this, the disadvantaged learners were twice as likely to do to do badly. And yet, First Minister said today, well, now the work begins to look at individual learners' pathways yeah. and individual yeah. learners. And my, my philosophy is that that's what Curriculum for Excellence is predicated upon, that we that the learner is at the centre, getting it right for every child. We don't get it right for every child after we've got it wrong for every child. We right. So I think the system has, we've seen the bones of the system now and they're not pretty. Yeah. Can I jump in and just say yeah. the, the, the problem, the difficulty is that with systemic change is that we've all got where we are through the system that's in place, you know, so we've all had various levels of success, if we call it that. Most of the people watching it tonight will have been through the system and had levels of success. And I'm not saying that is a good thing. I'm saying it's difficult to, to convince people to change, you know, the system that have worked out for them. And you're absolutely right, Lindsay. We're, we're focusing on the wrong um, outcomes for the wrong people. In fact, I don't want to express this, but you know what I mean. But we're not following what curriculum for excellence was intended to do. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if we get to we do three to fifteen, according to our lights, do it as well as we can, and we do the right things in the right ways as far as we can. And then suddenly we say, right, we've had enough of that now. Let's yeah. do something different. Uh, I, I was I had said earlier that um, I had created a think piece for the SQA in 2006 or 2007, which involved children creating a, a young learners creating a, a, a game, a Cluthello based on, a, on a, a Shakespearean text. Obviously, you'd be able to work out which one. Um, and it was evidencing their learning. And if the game couldn't be played successfully, it wasn't worth it. And the, ch- the children learned a lot from it. And that couldn't be evidence of the learning. And yet it would be evidence of learning 
our curriculum for excellence. And I think children who and young people who go into an exam, which is a foreign place for quite a lot of them with a pen and a piece of paper, um, on time, on day, in, a, in a, a very alien environment where they're not likely to do well, it's not a very good test of what they can see, write, make and do. And that is all, that's actually what we want for society. We want young people who are effective contributors to, to Scottish society and wider world. Thanks, for that, Raymond. I think those supermarket sweep on in the background. Um, no, it, it's actually it's actually um, my partner's listening to this podcast through a, a wireless um, uh, speaker, so it's that we'll get an echo from that. My apologies. No problem. So I, I guess that's really it. Brings me on to kind of this question of, um, you know, obviously we've seen that the education, sorry, the the exam system has has failed a lot of young people in that they have been given failed fail marks they have been failed out of the system and that happens every year there are students that fail or they get low grades and and they're compared to the students who pass and get top grades I guess if we're talking about this as a system who does this system currently benefit and I'm not just thinking about young people but I'm thinking about maybe other organizations that use examinations um, as some sort of uh, sign or marker of something Um, I can see you're nodding Melina Um, you want to speak to this? This, this yeah, idea? sure. Um, so I think yeah, it benefits in multiple ways, um, and we need to think about, I guess, the history of um, intelligence tests. They've always been based on classist notions, on ableist notions, on racist notions, um, which tend to privilege knowledge um, which is colonial, so um, knowledge that is valued by uh, white societies, um, well, the elites in societies those with the most power. So generally exams um, that are based on assessing um, some skills or knowledge that you've gained before, um, it's it's really a question of benefiting the most powerful. Um, It does also have a way of benefiting um, people who have a chance to um, who are trying to change their social situation. So it gives a sense of meritocracy. So if you study hard, you will get a chance to change um, by sitting this exam. So in some ways, um, when I look at ethnic minority uh, communities, for a lot of uh, Asian communities, an exam would be a way of uh, pr- in having a better life in Scotland, um, especially if your parents come from migrant backgrounds, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. The problem with what happened this year is actually um, a lot of uh, communities of colour have, have, pupils of colour really, have been, um, have not had that chance to sit an exam and actually uh, try and prove their skills. So um, a lot of the, the, uh, results were based on teacher estimates, and that's where we need to think about how these estimates are created. Um, when a teacher has to base their estimates on pupils that they know that they've seen, we've got to think about bias, um, and in particular racial bias and bias uh, that is linked to social social class. Implicit bias is something that we all learn um, implicitly through socialization. Um, regardless of the teacher's good intentions, it's really hard to reduce that bias. Um, especially in moments of stress. So that bias comes into play. And so um, the, the SQA couldn't do very much to mitigate and reduce those, those, um, the impact of bias on teacher estimates. I think that's a really good point. I think, I think there's been a lot said about how 
the education trust teachers and, and teachers need to make sure that the process that they're part of and the judgments they're making are are genuine judgments of um ability but i guess in all judgments you know you start making these these little slight differences or you find a reason to make the judgment don't you especially mm -hmm. if you're given the power to do so um so i guess any system if we were saying we we're going to rely on teacher judgment more we need to take anything to that like that into yeah. account um yeah. i get R raymond if, if if um we go to you really quickly um i'm thinking about you know what is this process exposed about the way that teachers think about their pupils yeah. both from your experience and, and and what we've seen even from the statistics which we might come to in a minute um yeah i th i think what this year's exposed is that is that there are fundamental flaws with the way we go about assessing children we we have an exam system that is by its very nature designed to fail people and therefore it becomes a, a question of who we feel and why um because um I mean, I'd, I'd bang on to students and to my pupils about the bell curve, about norm referencing. I have a bell curve there. And you can see it, yeah. Uh, and that's just a normal distribution curve. And when, when I explain exactly what goes on, um, even some teachers are shocked by, by what that actually means. Because what, what, what the normal distribution curve says is, look, in any, if you measure any big population, you will get one at one extreme, some, a few at one extreme, a few at another, but a, a, big, a big hump in the middle of the average. Um, if you measure height in the population of some, a few very tall people, a few very short people, but most people will be an average height. If you measure freckles, you'll have some people with no freckles. Some people who have got so many freckles are just one big freckle, but most people will have an average number of freckles. And but we take that statistical model and we apply it, it 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 also maps onto intelligence. Now of course with intelligence we're what are we measuring with intelligence? What are the inherent class, race, culture biases whenever we measure intelligence? But we we tend to accept that there are some bright people, some not so bright people, and people of average intelligence. But the mistake we made at Make is we think that that maps on to attainment, that bright people will get an A, uh, not so bright people will fail, but the vast majority of people will get a B or a C. But of course, we as teachers know that um, it's not a question of just your, your IQ. It's a question of how hard do you work? Um, how, how, good, um, how good is your teacher, basically? And the biggest factor of, tall, of all, of course, is what are the socioeconomic and the, the socio-cultural socio barriers that you face? Poor kids do less well than wealthy kids, despite, the, despite their intelligence. So I think what, what this has shown up, the exam, I think things have gone on for years because they've just gone on, they've worked. And we accept that, oh, do you know, the pass rate this year was reduced to 48, or the pass rate this year was bumped up to 55. But what that means is that we're making statistical adjustments to fit this normal distribution curve that absolutely um, condemn, must condemn some people to failure. So it's what we mean by that. And somebody tweeted, I mean, I've always said, you can fail an exam if you get 70% if everyone else gets 71 and somebody mm. replied last night to, to one of my tweets to say yeah that happened to her she got 72 percent in an ex in her exam but got a d 
Now, to me, to put somebody through a course, to put them through a test, to give them 72% and say, you failed, just screams injustice to me. And I think that's what it's showing up. You know, our system is designed to fail people. So who is it we fail and why? I think that's a big, for me, that's some of the big questions. I think it's really important. And, and, and who do we fail? And, and I know that it just it seems somehow, doesn't it, always that the people from the lowest socioeconomic groups fail um, as though this is the natural scheme of things. Um, I'm just going to put up this this chart that was doing the rounds on um, on Twitter and um, in a few articles, including an excellent article written by Melina for the Anti-Racist Educator, which we'll link yeah. to at the end. Um, and it's a chart of higher English. I'm oh, sorry, higher in general. Um, and I don't know whether you can see it. I'll make it really, really big just, just to point it out. Um, and highlighted here is um, the 2020 estimates provided by teachers and the 2020 results after the um, SQA's uh, moderation exercise. This is in the SIMD section at the bottom of the, the chart, um, and that's the 0 to 20% most deprived. And we see the statistics going back for four years there. Now, last year, 65% um, of uh, people from the most deprived groups passed um, higher. 81% uh, of the least deprived groups passed higher. So there's a, you know, I hate to do the maths on the spot, but a 50% difference there. Um, this year, teachers wanted to say that of those 0 to 20% most deprived pupils, 85% passed. And they wanted to say that 91% of the least deprived past. And after the moderation exercise, this norm referencing that Raymond's talking about, this, this statistical exercise, uh, they downrated that for the most deprived to 69% and they downrated it as well for the, the least deprived to 84%. However, the statistic going around is that's a 6% downrating for the least deprived and more like yeah. a 16% downrating for the most deprived. And I guess, looking at these statistics, we're all English teachers here, we have to ask, what does that mean? Why? And I think there's two questions here. They're interesting. Why did English, why did teachers decide that they thought those most deprived kids could should have passed that higher? Um, and why did the SQA think it needed to reduce those results? So in the moderation exercise, it might have been a statistical one, but really, what is the, the underlying assumptions there that that means they've carried out that statistical? Oh, and I might, actually, I might actually jump in really quickly. Lindsay, what does the SQA, why does the SQA feel they need to do this? I think the SQA needs to do this because norm is king and norm cannot be unseated or dethroned. And I think they don't want to upset the apple cart, however dodgy the apple cart might be. And I think they have disadvantaged young people and their teachers work really hard throughout the year. And we effectively stopped that work when all the value would be added. The more time, this, the, the research tells us that the more time uh, learners spend with effective teachers, the better they will do. It's the, significantly the, the most significant thing that can happen, especially when there is not that kind of backup at home. So they were deprived of that effectively. They were deprived in a great many cases of the ability to connect with the learning that was provided online. So they didn't have those opportunities so I think what teachers were doing was trying to give those children the benefit of what they would have had in a slightly different yeah. way. And the SQA wasn't 
really very interested in thinking about that. I have a, an issue with the word moderation as well, because they call it moderation, but moderation actually begins at the planning stage. And all the rest around what they were going to do talked about taking in all sorts of uh, factors and not just looking at the norm referencing. And quite clearly, they didn't take all the factors, what yeah. they except by and large what teachers had said. And the moderation is about planning for an outcome. They've applied some kind of verification that's to do with norm referencing to make it the same as virtually the same as other years. And I don't think they took into account the things that needed to be taken into account to minimise the impact on those who were likely and have been most advantaged by their king norm approach. Kenny, you wanted to come in there. Sorry, I cut you off. I to say a couple of things about that. Um, what I found offensive about it really was the assumption that teachers and those for those kids had overestimated for them because you know there was a there was an assumption that they were perhaps playing the system or playing the game. Um, when yeah. t teachers make judgments on what they have, what they see in front, of the work the kids are doing, and it would have been interesting to see what the what the estimates have been in previous years because they seem to have automatically yes. rather down on that level. And what happens, yeah. I think, with a lot of kids that are from more deprived backgrounds, of course, they have the ability, the ability to do it. We see it in classroom all the time, but they might not be as good as sitting at sitting exams. If that, if that makes sense. They have to learn. And they, they, it's a, it's a, an alternate way of assessing their learning should maybe be considered because of that. But they may not, they may go in and not do as well in the exam, which is perhaps why mm -hmm. those numbers come down a little bit. But I, I, th I thought that was, that assumption w w was a, was offensive for all those teachers out there that thought, no, these mm -hmm. kids uh, are, are doing really, really well. And certainly uh, in another d discussion, we could say, see, this year of all years, you know, considering what these kids, I wrote something in the test the other year about considering what these kids are going to go through, the experience they're going to go through, give them teaching estimates and, and we'll see, you know, what comes at the other side. The, the idea that the Daily Mail or, so, or whoever would be up in arms at those guys getting 20% higher than they normally get is, is frankly, if it's true, yeah. let's tackle it. If it's not true, then it's yeah. a yeah. So I didn't. I didn't hear that last bit, Kenny. If it's not true, if it's, I said if it's not. If it's not true, then it's it's completely offensive to assume that it is that, that those kids don't deserve that. And it's what everyone's really been saying about um, excluding, you know, certain groups from the process if they know they're going to, you know, be in that group anyway. Well, what what the what's the point of doing it in the first place? Because I know where I'm going to be. Yeah. So, so do you think this, sorry, sorry, go on, Marina. I was just going to say, do you think this is a, um, just, I think it is an example of the risk averseness of the SQA. So, you know, and, and we've had this exam system, we've had the higher for 130 years. That's a big badge of pride amongst the, um, the Scottish education system and establishment and many teachers to say it's been around that long. And this idea of credibility is very important. And I guess we could talk a bit yeah. maybe eventually about um, credibility for who, what is this A grade, these five A's meant to do, or these five B's, what are they used for? And I guess when we're talking about alternative education system, and this is just prompting for later on, um, you know, are we supposed to be giving a kind of commodity that students can use in the labour market or the education market to go to college afterwards? There is something valuable about an A grade in our current society. 
or a B grade or, you know, being able to say I've got four or five hires. But sorry, Melina, you were wanting to talk there. So I was just going to add um, to what Kenny was saying. It's important to remember that um, teachers have been estimating grades every year um, just in case that people cannot sit an exam because they're ill. So it's not something that we have to do right for the first time ever. Um, and very often we estimate based on our understanding of pupils. Um, so when they sit their prelims, it's a practice to see if they need any additional arrangements based on additional support needs. Um, and they they don't yeah they don't they don't actually have all the course knowledge not, not everything is taught yet um so it's again it's important to remember that we've been te teachers for a while we know how to um estimate grades even though bias comes into play the exam is supposed to um support that but we've got um coursework that we that is completed throughout the year in different subjects that is what we use to estimate grades. Um, so there's a balance between trusting the judgment of teachers, but also recognizing the bias that may be involved. I think it's about a bit like, um, so very similar to what uh, Lindsay was saying, you know, if we're gonna have a different system, maybe we need a system with more teacher judgment in it or more opportunities to do different forms of assessment, but we have to be saying we're trusting teachers and, and maybe what's a bit um, upsetting for some teachers is uh, the point that Alana is making here in the comments, um, most judgments were made were evidence based. And I feel offended that teacher professionalism and judgment is questioned in this way. And it, it does feel like without an explanation, I think, to a lot of people that they were asked to be professional. They took that very seriously to the point of in some of the statistics I've seen many teachers giving failing grades to students which, you know, can, if we can. were all wanting to give someone a freebie, we wouldn't you know, we wouldn't be doing that. Um, but yet. We've, at the actual moderation process or the statistic process, it's it's turned out that we weren't being yeah. trusted. Raymond, sorry. Yeah, yeah. If I could say just a little bit, but I think Alana's right. I mean, it, it does feel as if teachers are distrusted. And what's ironic is that um, teachers, whenever you whenever you propose some sort of um, teacher assessment based um, coursework assessment based. Um, uh, certification procedure people say well you can't trust teachers judgments and yet we trust teachers judgments because the uh, in the exam because it's teachers who mark the exam so why is it we don't trust their their um their their assessments in in the course but we do trust them in the exam and it's because of this mythology of the robustness of the exam uh, that, that that happens i mean make no mistake this is going to be a long term thing uh, i mean we're gonna have to we're gonna have to live with some sort of um, exam system for a while um and perhaps revised perhaps firmed up um and any kind of alternative is going to take a long time and it will include the testing of teachers evaluations there's going to have to be a lot of investment in moderation uh in collaborative assessment in departments and in authorities there's going to have to be a lot of work done and that's going to cost time and money it's just whether politically that's that time and money is going to be found i wonder whether that time and money which is the perennial problem I found in, in, in teaching is, is, is the main issue that actually exams seem cheaper to administer. Yep. Um, absolutely. Than, than other systems. Um, absolutely. You know. That's why we didn't give a second chance as well to pupils. Like in England, they're allowed, they're allowed to sit exams again. That wasn't on the table in Scotland. Which is an interesting point, actually, because obviously that's that sort of fits in with things that in England, 
presumably schools are paying for those exams and they, they pay to for entrance to the exams, whereas in the SQA we have a single awarding body and, and, and it's not the same sort of competitive system over exams. Yeah. This was brought up in our, sort of, our discussion earlier, actually. I've seen it brought up in a few places. Do you think the SQA have one eye on the sort of international qualification market and the way things are, you know, they have to be comparable to the English system? Um, I know when I went through, I did GCSEs. And I know they they got rid of the modular GCSE because it was seen as being too easy to take yeah. and retake and yeah. add up to a qualification over many years. Um, you think there's a bit of that in the sort of international space of examinations? Anyone? <laughs> or am I just making a I'm just making a point. I'm abusing the chair here. <laughs> um, OK, so maybe we'll move on to a, a slightly different question. Um, I guess. Um, we were sort of thinking earlier about what the alternatives might be. And we, we've touched on that a little bit. You know, what other things could we do in, in lieu of examination? Has anyone got any ideas? Can and I, would uh, it be robust? Um, I, I've always said, and I think Raymond and I have spoken about this in the past and said it was ever occasions about, I, I think I wouldn't go so far as to say get rid of exams, but I always ask the question, uh, you mentioned there about four A's and two B's. And I don't know anyone that six months after they leave school stands at the bar and, and asks what you got for your It's a door-rated something, of course it is, and, and I still think a good education is a gateway to a good life, of course, because that's why I do the job. But it seems to me that four A's and two B's are only really helpful to you if you go to university. It doesn't seem to me if you're going on certain other pathways. And I don't see why exams can, can't be an elective for those that need it. And I wanted someone to go and do, the, the poor girl yesterday in the news who wanted to be a doctor and, and didn't get her grades. And I, want my, I don't want my doctor to try hard. I want my doctor to be the best out there. I, don't, you know, I, want, my, I want these people to be the, the, the best and the smart people that can that want to do it. So yeah. I don't think we can ever completely get rid of them. But I just see, you know, if we could divert, uh, money and sources and talent and um, GTC and Education Scotland into a, a, a constant stream of moderation and assessment where we work together as partners and so kids have to reach, it's not like an old NAB system where they just tick it and move on, they have to prove that they're, 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 they're um, achieving each stage and so they leave so a higher English becomes a pass or a fail unless you want to do an exam for that uh, and actually can I, can I? unless you want to do an exam for that and then so you can and, and it's not a case of saying oh yeah those guys, those in the bottom 20% don't have to do it of course we encourage people to do what they want to do but, but I just think it, it seems strange that uh, we just keep churning out this same generosity. I mean, it's it's what's the purpose of of the yeah. system? One to fifteen, we've got this broad based, really diverse, really rich in lots of ways education that suddenly stops. When in oh. fact, in Finland, for example, they elect to take exams if they yeah. want to go to university. But the, the education is the same for everybody, and I think. That going into university, getting the, your five, you're actually not able to have a conversation with anybody. I've had lots of students who've high flying students who've got their A's, but as, as as doctors, they couldn't possibly relate to people. And when they go for their interviews, they're asked, "Well, what else have you done? You know, what we need well rounded individuals." Yeah. We've been so thrilled to 
learning the stuff that they need to get their five A's or six A's, yeah. but haven't developed any other aspect of their personalities or their, their mm -hmm. lives. And they, they are very narrow individuals. And that's not what CFE is about. It shouldn't be what the senior phase is about. We need to... Yeah. The Irish system is, the, is held up, whether you agree with it or not, as one of the best systems. I mean, in our pre-broadcast discussion, I was mentioning that we do live already with a whole host of other kinds of assessments. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mentioned the driving test, where if you choose, if you choose, if you want to drive, you choose to take the test. Uh, and if you meet the standard, you pass it. And if you don't pass it, there's no penalty for taking it again. Nobody's going to question you and see how many times you have to take the test. Um, the associated board exams in music, where you decide and elect to take uh, a particular um, level to say that you are now at this grade um, and, and then we have you know we, we live with we are we did in schools we certainly lived in the past with a lot of Scotvec modules which have modular assessments so we're used to a whole host of different kinds of assessments and and you know I'm looking at um, Paul Cochran's comment that um, he's, he would be you know, internal going fully internal assessment would would put a lot of pressure on teachers, um, and Laura Green mentions that too, and I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't think we can go to a fully internally assessed. Maybe if we had smaller class sizes and more teachers, we could, but that's cloud cuckoo land. That's not not going to happen in uh, the current economic climate. But yeah, we, we live already with alternative assessment systems that measure what a pupil can do. Um, and it's not based on what they can do in comparison with others. It's not a case of, well, you got seven out of 10, but everyone else got 7.1 out of 10, so you've failed. So yeah, we live with them already. Can I point and, and obviously, you know, internal assessment, no one's saying that teachers should just be sitting and writing in a grade. There is moderation procedures where <laughs> teachers can come into each other's schools and look at work and compare work and, and, and do that kind of, you know, quality assurance, which, you know, sounds a bit like education speak, but is important. Sorry, Kenny, I interrupted. I just wanted to add, I think Laura Green and the, the messages has made a really good point about internal assessment resulting in extra teacher pressure. I don't think so. I think currently we see internal assessment as teacher pressure because of our history with NABs and all those things. But if we change our whole outcome where we, we you know, considering I think any English teacher especially would, would admit to starting National 5 halfway through S3, even though we're not supposed to. Um, <laughs> hey, yeah. Partly because a lot of kids get to fourth level halfway through third year, and also because there's so much to get through. I, I, I'm saying this publicly that, that at times we've done that. You know, I'm not saying that it happens all the time, but it, it happens. If we took away that race to the exam, and you know, most English teachers I know are concerned that we didn't get June to prepare for next year's hire. Then <laughs> we've not time for actual teaching and, and real, you know, working with kids, other other agencies to to assess as as we go. So I'll I'll, I'll draw back on saying internal assessment and just call it assessment. Yeah. It's a professional judgment, which is the same as for CFE three three to fifteen. It's your professional judgment. I used to, in two of the departments that, that I was PT in, the same teacher stayed with their their English classes, and it was a fight every year with the, the timetabler, but the same teacher took their English class from first year through to third year, 
And the knowledge base that we gain from that was, was huge. And the knowledge that you gain about each learner's individual needs and requirements was, was invaluable. The knowledge, I think, that English teachers particularly build up, not exclusively, but I think importantly, build up about their uh, learners' skills, abilities, gaps in their learning is astonishing. And the relationships that are built up are, are based on that one-to-one relationship that, that, that teachers build with these learners. And that the relationships are vital to those learners' ability to succeed in whatever terms. Um, it may not be the passing of an exam, but there are lots of colleagues I've known who've had learners come back to them and say, you made a difference because you knew what I needed. And that actually can be much more important to a learner's future than any letter coming through an envelope or on a text message. Great. I really, no, I really think that's really important. And we are very lucky to be the, the, the greatest subjects in the greatest profession. You know. <laughs> anyway, um, so really quickly, someone's brought this up and I hear this a lot, actually, um, from my colleagues. Um, I never actually taught standard grade, but standard grade comes up as, as though what a great system. Mm -hmm. We do it really well. Mm -hmm. um, and it had this ability to present people at different levels. So Paul's saying that the mm -hmm. CFE test SQA level have abandoned many people. In achievement for all standard grade, there was a C, G and F available. Whatever its faults, around 90% achieved a qualification. National 5 has a 20% failure, failure rate. Um, some older older heads than mine might, you know, call that. <laughs> but do we, do, talking I, about? But on, on, the, on the page, it sounds to me like, you know, yeah, it's the same qualification, but presented at different levels. It results in something for everyone. But really, was it just hiding the inequalities or what was going on there? I, anyway. I think the original conception of standard grade was that it was a, a, a straightforward criterion based assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, you, children were measured against a standard and they either mm -hmm. got it or they, they either met it or they didn't. But there was a, a, a big hoo-ha about how how we would then use that to inform destinations for pupils how could employers and how could use that how could we decide who was going to go on to hire if what if what, if what we had was a list of their skills what we and therefore that those criterion were watered down to grade related criteria and before we knew it we were back into the realm of me of measuring kids against each other and assigning them a one, two, three, four, five. Now, standard grade, I think, was better in many ways. Um, as Paul says, though, it still had its problems. I'd like to revisit the, he mentions the Howie report. I'd like to revisit some of these ideas that we had in the past about pushing it forward because they've always hit against the barrier of the mythology of this, um, the, the, the golden um, gold standard of the higher. They've always hit against that. And I'd like, I would like to revisit some of those past ways and refine them for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A really good point. Um, I'm looking at a few of the comments here and um, uh, a friend of the show, um, Nav, is there saying his concern in, in general with, with examination systems, I think, is that it main, maintains only one kind of assessment and only one way of displaying one's knowledge um, holds yeah, value. Absolutely. And I think this is the point of what, a, um, of what a qualification system does. You know, you are demonstrating some kind of ability to possess and demonstrate co a cultural value and demonstrate your economic value to people. Um, are we, whenever we have terminal exams, are we always doomed to basically um, 
trying to meet the needs of the economy or maybe the higher education system um, in some way? Is there a way to have some sort of recognition at schools that isn't about saying this person is employable or this person is meeting a criteria to go on to further education? Um, I think it's a really broad question. If anyone would like to make a different point, they can. Um. <laughs> there we are. It's a sign of a good. It's a sign of a good question, isn't it? I, I, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much. But earlier, I was saying that you know a lot of replies to some of my tweets last night were from universities, university academics, saying we don't use exams nearly as much as we used used to. We use really, really creative ways of measuring people's attainment and and skills and knowledge. Uh, and I was also getting some employers saying, look, we're not interested in a grade. We're not interested in the A they got at higher. We're interested in their their background their interest what kind of person they are so i think you know when we when we promote this line that we need a grade for universities and for employers um we're at, we're actually a bit behind the times they're they're outstripping us in their attitudes where, where does a, a, a an entry level to university come because kids come with offers for where they need three a's and two b's to get into that's true that's true I hear university people saying that before, but the entrance level is not, you know, decent, rounded person that works well in a group. It's you've got mm-hmm. five, or five A's. So here's the problem with that. And 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 I've been saying for some time, and, and I think I quote Bill Boyd, who's a literacy um, expert. Um, he'll hear people saying that, I think. But why not get universities to, admin, to ad, administer the exams if it's as an entrance exam and, yeah. and so we can do other things and uh, it seems it would free up so much time all the all the concerns about internal assessment are absolutely right it could take up all your time but if, it, if we were freed up from a lot of the exam pressures and, and remember I said that I'm not saying get rid of exams I'm saying it could be there for those who elect to do them mm-hmm. uh, at the time that they choose to do them and I think we could yeah. rather than a 3 to 18 curriculum we could have a 3 to yeah, continuous lifelong learning curriculum I do wonder whether I know that in some systems, say in in South Korea, there's obviously these exam factories and things like this, where once you have an internal exam giving you access to college or to university, you end up with people who can afford to employ tutors for those exams and you kind of externalize the problem slightly. I do I do worry about that, that while we still have you know great rewards from having a good university degree potentially in society maybe the rewards are less than they used to be but um there are rewards out there to be gained that obviously the people that have the resources and the educational and cultural resources to 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 get them um continue to do so and there is still a dream somewhere isn't there a bit like um uh, melina was discussing and maybe you've been a bit quiet for a while melina um but that some especially um first generation groups see these kind of gold standard exams as neutral arbiters of their value and their worth and a way to get around, say, maybe institutionalized racism and say, you know, we get these opportunities um, that, that, that maybe wouldn't be accessible otherwise. I don't know whether you've got any points from the discussion here, Melina, do you want to jump in? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that uh, the point Lindsay was making about internal assessments, like it's true, it's great to have that relationship with your pupils, but um, when you're not marking a, a piece of paper work and you don't actually know the pupil's background, that's where you can actually have a really fair 
um, assessment. Um, so there's no implicit bias that comes into play, gender bias, um, bias based on, well, additional support needs and so on. So um, what has often been a barrier for a lot of um, people of color, especially black peoples, um, gypsy, Roma, uh, Roma gypsy traveler peoples as well, who are, are one of the most disadvantaged groups in the Scottish education system, um, is the, the, they, the, the exam system creates a sense of meritocracy. If you are able to, I guess, um, gain that knowledge and uh, prove yourself through that blindfolded system of sitting the exam, then it gives you a whole load of um, opportunities to overcome the social barriers that are um, still pervasive in our society. So it's really, yeah, a question of overcoming those barriers in, ter um, in terms of sexist um, oppression and gender oppression, racial oppression. So there, yeah. Is, is there something in this, and I'm going to use a, a, a sort of technical academic term, but this, this reproduction of class and this reproduction of our, our society. Um, I remember my university studies with Bourdieu and distinction, that if you're going to have different layers <laughs> of society, where some people get more than others, you need to you need to distinguish between people, and that in the end, you know, is, are we still as an education system sorting, you know, the um, the wheat from the chaff or the uh, the crows from the pigeons? I don't. What's the phrase? I can't remember what it is. Um, the wheat from the chaff. That'll do. And, and 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 if we're in a society like that, I mean, I, I guess our, our our aim sometimes as teachers is hopefully to change the individual lives of students. But can we do that without saying, look, as a society? We need to change. Um, I don't know whether that's a bit too broad in general as a discussion. School always, you know, takes the burden on changing society, doesn't it? And it shouldn't mm. be like that. Everything, you know, we can only deal with the system that we're given. We can't, we can't change inequality. We can't solve poverty. We can't. We just can't do that. That needs to be. If we're talking about bigger picture, there, then school, school can really enhance the life chances of individuals. But we can't change. Yeah. But I, 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 I take what, what Kenny's saying, absolutely. Um, we can't solve the ills of society, but thinking thinking about um, uh, what Melina was saying, I, I think it's also incumbent on us as teachers to ensure that we are as class, race, gender blind as we can be, uh, or, or not blind, that's a wrong word, that, that's absolutely the wrong word, but we, ha you know, we, 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 we have to take into account um, yeah that so you know that there's a lot of ways in which we have to educate ourselves too um about relationships with our pupils um so I, i'm sorry for using that phrase but you know it, it's yeah um we we can a big difference but we do need to um interrogate ourselves and our own attitudes all the time ironically the, the scottish government's big push and they're spending a huge amount of money on it because my last job was with that was with the ricks which is you know closing the poverty related attainment gap and it, you were there was a kind of positive discrimination in play there where if um, for PEF and for for Rick you head teachers were encouraged to themselves decide what gap was there in there so it could be traveler children for example as Melina was saying yeah. well, we had a lot of um, a lot of our schools had significant proportions of traveler children and a lot of money was put into um, supporting what they needed uh, to, to be able to get the most out of their their time in the in the, the place they were going to in school, whichever school it was. And the government actually, I think, given the due, is 
trying to interrupt that cycle. And it seems that's why this particular situation has really got under my skin when you're when you're norm referencing at the other end. They are spending millions of pounds trying to interrupt that and actually giving head teachers the ability to do that and to make sure that these children who are you can see the disadvantage from whichever angle it comes mm. whether it's children who have just i had a child who'd come in from in fact a couple who'd come in um from one of the on a very disadvantaged african uh, country and had no english etc etc and resources were were applied to not just to the child but to the family because yes. people and Rick allowed that and the interruptions, the closing the poverty related attainment gap, the Rick interventions are beginning to make a difference there, real difference. Mm. But if those children then are fed into a system where at the end there's yes. implicit disadvantage and you're going to be norm referenced, then what is the earthly point in putting all that effort on all these uh, family yeah. workers, etc., that have been paid for? It really it, that's that's a real issue for me. It would have been good to, after this whole, right, we've got the historical performance of schools, let's see which groups are most disadvantaged, and then how can we positively act to ensure that they're given a fair chance, um, uh, an extra benefit of maybe, yeah, going through coursework rather than putting the onus on pupils and teachers to go through the appeals process, which was probably causing exclusions um, for families who don't have the understanding of the Scottish education system, who don't have the language skills um, and cultural capital to do all that. The government should be taking that responsibility um, in their equality impact assessment, right? We know that these groups are disadvantaged. What are we going to do um, actively to make sure that we repair that damage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's very tricky, isn't it? And it's it's kind of some people asked on say on some say Twitter. We keep going back to Twitter, but um, you know, would it be so terrible if some of the poorest kids in our community got an A grade that apparently they didn't deserve <laughs> because they wouldn't have been able to jump through the hoops of an exam system? You know, if you're trying to interrupt the sort of cycles of poverty, yeah. you know, eventually you have to sort of step in, and you can't just say we're going to ask you to jump through, you know, say say the family, you know, don't have English, you're referring to Lindsay. Are we going to just give them lots of, you know, opportunities to learn about Shakespeare and learn about English and all the things that we value as a culture mm-hmm. so that they can pass an arbitrary exam system or perhaps a system that recognised that they probably are very literate and, you know, understand a lot yes. about their culture and understand a lot about mm-hmm. their world, um, and but maybe asking them to, you know, study a Shakespeare text, though I love it, and you know I'm a big fan of Shakespeare, um, is unreasonable, you know. And asking someone who comes from a disadvantaged socioeconomic background, um, mm. you know, to jump through these hoops that you know most of us who have benefited from the system, yeah. these very middle class um, kind of mainstream culture, which isn't really mainstream, which is often an elite culture, um, asking anyone to jump through these hoops is unreasonable. Can um, I just give you an anecdote, a really important one? I was. Mm-hmm. It's because I was accosted in the pub when we still had pubs, really, um, by someone at, at our pub quiz. Um, and I'd answered a question in our team on, I think it was Macbeth, it was double, double toil and trouble. It wasn't difficult. And I hadn't had enough gin to make it difficult. And he said, he was really angry. And he said, I couldn't have answered that question. And I said, don't be ridiculous. Of course you could. Stupidly. And he said, no. He said, I wasn't in the class that got Shakespeare. Now, mm-hmm. I 
Shakespeare's for everybody and it's up to the teacher to make Shakespeare for everybody. I mean, I can't imagine why Othello, the Moor of Venice, wouldn't be a really good vehicle for mm -hmm. discussion of the kind of uh, meritocracy that, that's required and, and the dangers inherent in, in bias, as Melina was talking about. I can't imagine why you wouldn't. So I think it, when we talk about middle class or, I mean, I, I don't want to teach Saturday night and Sunday morning or the angry angry playwrights all over again and rehearse the 60s. I, I want a broad, balanced, interesting, you know, inclusive curriculum for everybody. I don't want to decide for them what they want to read either. I think we lead and they discover, and I think that's really important. I think, sorry, just jump in really quickly. I think um, English with Mrs. Grant has made a really great point here. I emailed my students, she says, to say I was appealing for them. Not a single one had asked if that was a possibility. They were ready to accept their lot. And her next comment is really telling. The appeals process requires a self-belief and level of advocacy that many disadvantaged pupils feel they will not benefit from. And I really think saying there's a free appeals process, you know, it requires you in lots of ways to have a parent often who's going to say, I'm not going to put up with this. And is willing to march into an office or send a, an angry email saying, you know, X, Y, Z is going to happen. And, and that is a massive, you know, example of privilege um, that some people have that yeah. family background that feels that they deserve yeah. things from the culture. And some people know that they're never deserving of things from yeah. our culture. Yeah. Of course. yeah, that's a great point. Every, I would hope every English department, every skill department in Scotland is appealing for every kid possible without, yeah. without being asked. Appeal for everything that you can get. The, the point you were making was interesting earlier on about the kid who was hoping, might have been hoping to get an A this year and didn't get an A. And um, a wee point about university that I, I hope I'm not contradicting myself from earlier on. The power of um, someone being the first person to go to university in a family yeah. is massive as I've found out. And I think if someone this year has not been given that opportunity because of an estimate, I think we really need to look at ourselves because we keep being told about equity, equity, equity. And, and going to university is not the be all and end all, of course it's not, but it's massively important to yes. change yes. The, the life of, of yeah. individuals and their families and their kids and their kids in general generationally how we get rid of poverty is through education and through yeah. making sure that everyone yeah. gets there it's not an exclusive wee club so what i think maybe i'm yeah. about that is the fact that yeah. there were kids there sitting now who can't get into university because someone's crunched a number yeah i, th I think we always have to make positive choices positive decisions we have to estimate on the on on the the, the positive side i mean looking at that that um, table we showed earlier, where there were 85% estimate, the 85% estimate for uh, the lower SIMDs. Um, but you could see that for the, the higher SIMDs, it was over 90%. So even when we are being positive, we're making the assumption that disadvantaged children are not going to do as well as those who have, have advantage. And coming back to the idea of you know, um, uh, second language kids coming into classes and and doing Shakespeare and all that. It's it's always astonished me that a child comes to our school who's for whom English is perhaps a second or third language, and they're automatically put into a class in English that is at the lower end. Um, mm -hmm. 
these are kids who are good at language and they will yeah. pick up the, the they will pick up the, the the really sophisticated rich language that's going on in the top higher classes really really well but instead we give them a denuded um language um yeah. By, by the by placing them in a particular class and i think we always have to be ambitious for all of our children we we, we have to we have to it's the expectations it's about saying mm. that you know they they can do this they we, we're going to support them in every way we can but they can do this and not making assumptions even before they come into our classroom based mm. on who they are and where they've come from i mean that's a really good point i think um we're heading towards our time. Um, I think we can run a few minutes over if we've got a few things I'd like to talk about, if that's okay with everyone. If you have to disappear from our audience, that's absolutely fine as well. I, I don't think there's anyone on our panel who needs to jump away to the, it's not Friday night anyway. Um, uh, Alison Johnston has, has mentioned here, I'm sorry for covering your faces at the bottom there, Kenny. Um, and Lindsay, it's a, it's a shame. Um, they say, jumping up. They say Germany also has a very different system where learners are valued whether they take the academic route or a more work-based focus. And I think when we're talking about those exams like or tests rather, like the driving test and Scott Beck and et cetera, they have this badge vocational, you know, and that's a bit like you were saying, Kenny, university isn't the be all and end all, but it is important. <clears throat> It perhaps has outweighed importance in our society. But I'm thinking about how could we actually move forward and change things or what could things look like? I don't know whether this is true, Melina, but I've heard that in France, you don't you, you pass out with your certificate of leaving high school, but everyone kind of has the right to go to university. It's not necessarily based on exam results. It's for some of the elite universities, um, the, the Grande École or whatever, but for yeah, local exactly. Yeah. How does that work? Or do you think that's, is that a more progressive system? I, I wonder. <laughs> I, so I, I didn't go to university to France. Uh, in France, I came to Scotland to study, but um, I always thought the Scottish education was um, system was more progressive because um, you always got that option of sitting your national five or higher um, or even national four at different stages. So you could do it in S4, S5, S6, depending on your school. Um, so there was that level of flexibility. Um, in France, you do also have in secondary school options to, I think it would be the equivalent of uh, third year. You, you can sit um, go on a vocational course. So instead of sitting a baccalaureate, you sit um, a specialised baccalaureate, which becomes a bit of an apprenticeship. Um, but I think in Scotland as well, we have those options. Um, you don't have to go to university. You can go to colleges and um, follow, go on these apprenticeships uh, programmes. And I think it's maybe worth exploring those and uh, those alternative paths and actually valuing them a bit more. Um, pupils, and I suppose it comes from families as well, always aspire to university. Um, it's always seen as the golden ticket, but actually, um, especially now with the whole pandemic and online learning, there are other options out there that um, we should maybe try valuing a bit more in, in Scotland. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's, I think it is interesting. I don't want to harp on about the 60s, Lindsay, um, but uh, um, but 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 perhaps we live in a very strange culture where the idea of producing anything practically isn't valued. Yeah. We're very academic you know, yeah. uh, society, possibly because of, I don't know, history of deindustrialization. I don't want to get too political, but, um, well, you know. I know that when, in the dark ages, when I was at school, uh, in the particular area I lived in, in, in Redshire, we had a two-tier system that was really quite revolutionary at the time, where uh, you were, you were sent to a, a, a secondary school, and uh, after two years, 
when you had worked through first and second year, they they whether you could you had the choice of going to a more vocational secondary school or onto an academic mm -hmm. one, and that they did say we recommend that you do, but you did ultimately have a choice. And that worked really well for lots and lots of young people. I had friends who, who took a different route from me and actually own businesses, run businesses. They, they've become very successful. Um, and entrepreneurial skills were, were really, that was, that was the, the cradle for those in those days. But they stopped that because they thought, oh, that makes people different. Well, actually, it was a choice. And they could still come back to, if they decided they'd made the wrong choice, they they could come back into the more academic side if that's what they wanted. It was really quite free flowing, depended on your choice. So I think if you, there shouldn't be any kind of barriers to the kind of learning you want to do. And I think graduate apprenticeships, the school I, I last worked in um, went for national progression awards. We did a huge amount of stuff with the third sector. We did the larger children learned about the hospitality industry. They practiced those skills. They used them in school. Um, they were valued. I mean, in my, my faculty had um, early education and childcare as part of their, their delivery. And actually the skills of literacy, they are a really high level literacy skills. Mm -hmm. And I learned a great deal from that. But the learners themselves valued what they were able to do and how it linked into mm -hmm. they didn't want to do higher or they couldn't thought they couldn't do higher. But they had a high level of literacy skills in the course they were doing. But they also had a vocational qualification that was actually highly valued by the learners and the school. It's the it, it, it's the way it's presented. It's, if it's valued, it's valued. And we can help people to value what is valuable. Yeah, I think I guess it's a, it's, it's a, it's a question as a society, how we choose what we value and what we want mm -hmm. to put. Yeah. My last point, I guess, would be so we've we've had our rant. We've uh, We've had our little informal coffee, coffee chat, coffee morning chat. You know, we only get 15 minute breaks at our school, so we wouldn't have a conversation quite this long. What can we actually do and what routes are there to affecting some sort of change? If we want if we want something broadly, um, you know, as we've discussed with more routes for learners and with more ways of recognizing their learning and their skills and their achievement, um, less focused on final terminal exams that, that sort of seal your fate forever and for, forever and more. Um, what can we do as a profession, um, you know, uh, and as a profession that's sort of self-conscious about these sorts of things um, to affect some sort of change? Anyone got any ideas? Uh, just, um, I think we need to be careful, uh, first of all, that uh, if we think this year's been bad, you know, what are we going to learn about it for next year? <laughs> because if we're talking about another, a second wave of, of the pandemic, if we're going to have another lockdown, what, you know, we need to be thinking about something for this year. So I don't think this is a, a dream in the future. I think this could be, if we could come up with something really good at the moment for this year that's based on um, a long-term internal assessment, and I hate to use that expression, but and then think about how an exam would complement that this year. I think we need to do it quite quickly. So I think that problem is going to be um, racing forward. No, I agree. I think, I think I'm going to very quickly. Sorry, Melina, yes. Yeah, I think um, a lot of teachers will have learned that actually now gathering evidence is so important. Um, when run up to school, schools locking down, we had to take photographs of all these different um, assessments that had been done in class. And so 
I think a lot of schools, a lot of teachers are going to be preparing for that just in case that exams are cancelled next year. Um, but it's also up to the SQA to think about how are they going to mitigate all the, the additional disadvantages that have been exacerbated because of the coronavirus and uh, the cancellation of exams. It would be nice to see some change or some action being made. They might also bring back, the, bring back the internal assessments for National 5 that were taken away from the world. No, no, that's no. not what I'm saying. We could also, if we're telling uh, our students as well when we go back next week that this might happen, so you have to work all the way through the year rather than. <laughs> and that might be a really good way of getting them on board as well, so they're learning consistently throughout the year. You might not have an exam to rely on next year, so, and if you think of those guys come through National 5 are going to be affected with higher as well. That's going to have a huge impact on, on their school experience. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I'm, I, I, I also, sorry, sorry, Raymond, I'm going to, I'm going to ask no, us to wrap no, up a bit, but, but what I would say is we'll, we'll actually have an opportunity for everyone to give a closing statement um, or like a, you know, an opportunity to say, say their piece. Um, my, my point would be to say, I wonder what we're going to do for students have just gone through this process. So what is going to happen to all these students who've had their results downgraded and feel this real sense of injustice about it, which is completely legitimate? Um, you know, what's going to be done for them? I know there's protests at the SQA tomorrow, and I think it's really, it might, it might be a, um, a really interesting thing for this generation of students, or maybe they'll just feel like they've not been valued, because I think in a lot of cases, they've become the victim of statistics, unfortunately. Sorry, so let's uh, let's all sign off. Um, you've got two or three minutes. Um, go on, Raymond, your turn. We'll take it in turn. Last um, thought. Okay, I, I think the thing that, I think the best thing that we can do individually as teachers is something I've banged on about for years, and that is stop confusing what needs to be done in the exam with the course. The course is something different and broader and deeper. Um, we, uh, we can, we can, we can, um, gather evidence of a, a pupil's response to literature in so many other ways than a critical essay or a, a, a timed um, a, a time set text um, questions. We can do so much more. We can have conversations with them. We can get them to be writing about literature in so many other ways. And we can do that for every, every part of the course. So let's broaden the range of activities that we do that demonstrate pupils' abilities in English. And you Use that as evidence to say they are uh, they are um, uh, deserving of a hire, um, and if we do that, it, that's not going to that's not going to in any way impede them in writing a, crit a critical essay in the exam. They're still going to be able to do that because they have a much broader, deeper foundation of of skills, um, and that's what I would say. Stop confusing the course. Do more if you can, do more um, across a broader range of activities and and teach a higher course rather than a higher exam. That's what I would say. Excellent points. Uh, Melina, your, your closing ideas. <laughs> um, I suppose, yeah, I totally agree with everything that Raymond said. Um, I would maybe add uh, more on just teacher agency and how um, I've understood that change happens in general when you're looking at social change, um, anti-racism, for example. Um, we have had the coronavirus, uh, Black Lives Matter resurgence. Um, it's only when people are aware of injustices that are so prominent in front of your eyes, everyone is suddenly 
um, seeing it, talking about it, we really need to take this opportunity to make sure that um, we continue to hold uh, power to account. So um, we shouldn't let this opportunity uh, slip away and be forgotten. We need to use this moment um, to really inform our decisions and use our teacher agencies for our trade unions um, with our pupils, making sure we support families um, to really make a difference. So that's this is an opportunity for change. It's not just an opportunity to um, complain about what's going on. I think it's a really good point, you know, using this to affect change. Um, uh, Kenny, you're, you're next up. What do you think? Um, I'm going to say something slightly different in the, in the fact that we need to remember those of us going back on Tuesday, seeing kids on Wednesday, that these young people have been out of school for five months, so we shouldn't underestimate the, the, um, the mental health issues and getting them used to being back in school and just, you know, not rushing straight into doing exam stuff and just getting back to normal again. Um, but also I've put on a personal level missed um, standing in a classroom reading from a book. So I'm really looking forward to it. So let's go back <laughs> because I really missed that. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of talk. Um, <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And Lindsay, your your final thoughts. Well, really, everyone said everything that I think I, I wanted to say, but what I don't want to happen is I don't want to hear again that the SQA has preserved national standards when, in fact, they're already unequal. And I don't think that's the defence that anyone can afford to put up with. Mm -hmm. and I applaud the case tomorrow for making that stance. Yeah, I think this idea, point, you know, is it credible that so many students fail and it's yeah. directly related to their social and economic, you know, yes, it's not yeah. credible, yeah. it's not a credible thing to be happening. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that was a really enlivening discussion. I don't think we solved the problems of the world, but we maybe, you know, put some pins in them um, and said this is this is where we stand on it. As I thought, it was an excellent, robust discussion. Um, I'm really glad everyone sort of, you know, said their mind and, uh, and hopefully, you know, maybe someone will be listening and maybe we'll, we'll push some of these ideas more into the, ma the mainstream. I think they are the mainstream among a lot of teachers. Um, the problem is that, as Kenny said earlier on, the inertia of these structures and organisations are incredibly hard to shift. So I just want to say goodbye to you all. If you give me a wave and I'll do my closing little bit. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. One, two, three, and then there was one. So uh, thank you so much for joining us for the, the SAIT webinar today on the exam 2020 situation. Um, it was a really enlivening discussion, as I said before. Um, please do follow us on SAIT at SAIT Feed on Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking the subscribe button below. Um, we have some excellent uh, recordings available to watch now. Um, this recording will be available straight after the session to rewatch if you want to, uh, if you missed a bit at the start or you want to check anything out. We're hoping to have more and more CPD and discussions and um, guests, uh, guest authors uh, and different people talking about their ideas about education as we go forward. Um, please look after yourselves. Good luck going back to school on Tuesday. Uh, be nice to yourself, be nice to your pupils, and I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>